Hi, and welcome to the 15th and final episode of Season 1 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Frengu. This week, I'm joined by RACQ Life Flight Helicopter Pilot, Natalie White. Nat's amazing career started in the Navy, where she first learned to fly. She soon moved on to flying a vast range of operations in the MRH-90, including search and rescue, medivac, as well as humanitarian and disaster relief operations. She's now in a similar role as a pilot for RACQ Life Flight from her base in Brisbane. Thanks to every single one of my listeners for all your support this season. Since I started the show back in August, I've just been overwhelmed by the reach and the positive response to the show during this time. Thank you so much. I'd also like to thank every single one of my guests this season. Barry Rogers, Dan Bolton, Simon Burke, Shelley Ross, Tim Howes, Deborah Laurie, Wilco, Steve Hitchin, Bevan Anderson, Jeremy Sequera, Kathy Mexted, Stefan Drury, Maria Jovanovich, Steve Fisher, Grant McHeron, and of course this episode's guest, Natalie White. Because without all of you, there'd be no show, and this show's all about you and your amazing stories. Once again, if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, that'd be awesome. Our handle's up and away cast. Now, fasten your seatbelt, and let's go. Hi, Nat. Welcome to Up and Away. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. I'm so excited. Me too. We've been uh, trying to tee this up for a while and I'm super excited that we're here sitting in front of each other digitally and ready to go. Yeah, I think as it gets to the end of the year, everyone gets busy, but um, I'm glad we've both uh, we've both got here too. So, yeah. Totally squeeze it in just before the end of the year. So let's finish on a high. <laughs> let's hope so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I like starting the podcast with this question. When did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? Uh, I, I think as I've heard a lot of people say that um, everybody's got an aviation story or a pivotal moment that got them into aviation. Uh, and I guess, you know, I have the memories uh, of when I was a kid going up to the flight deck uh, of long haul flights because uh, my family live or my extended family live in Britain. So we used to do that and I used to go up to the cockpit. I remember the lights. I remember talking to the pilots and engaging, and I always really enjoyed that uh, on the flights. But uh, I was really lucky because uh, when I was at high school, I got the opportunity to go and do uh, a summer camp, which was sort of two weeks in the US Air Force. Um, So we went over to the States and did, you know, and it was just a summer camp for school kids, but you got to do flight simulators and talk about aviation. And I just loved it. Uh, that's very cool yeah and um so after that experience i went hey i you know i'll look into aviation it was never something that had come up with uh you know with the subjects i did at school i was very maths and science orientated but i was sort of looking down different paths so i said oh maybe i'll have a look at aviation uh and there was a aviation expo uh, here in brisbane city where i grew up um that my mother took me along to and yeah i saw all the stands around for you know your Qantas and and other aviation uh and other aviation like providers uh and there was a military stand there and I remember engaging with the guy and he said um you know what would you like to do uh in aviation we've got all these careers in the military and I just went wow that sounds really interesting um I'll see where it takes me but I didn't think at the time that I would take that path. I was like, oh, it's pretty interesting, but it's probably not for me. And the more I looked into it, 
you know, they, uh, I was going to go to university and do a degree and they pay for your flying training. And at that point I was looking at flying training elsewhere and how expensive it was and the, yeah, yeah, exactly. And (laughs) and how hard it is in industry to get through. So I said, oh, well, I might as well give it a go, see if it works out. If it doesn't, I'll find another way to, to get into aviation. And I guess I just sort of followed the path down and ended up uh, joining the military from there and and being a pilot. But uh, I also remember drawing the dots of something my dad used to say to me, which he said, you know, you want to be doing a job that you're proud of and that's interesting and exciting that you want to talk about. And he said, if you can find a job that you get really excited about talking about, that you're passionate about and that you're really proud of doing, go and do that. And and I really found that in, in the aviation space. It's great advice, actually. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a key element one. So, yeah, I'll thank mm-hmm. my dad for that. I think, yeah, um, yeah, a lot of people sort of think they're obliged to do a particular thing or it's like, oh, you know, if it's fun or enjoyable, or I'm excited about it. It's not like a valid career path. Mm. But there's so many, you know, if you're passionate about it, I think you you make something out of it regardless of what it is. I think yeah. a lot of people, like I come from a music background and a lot of people are too scared to study music or pursue that as a career. But I think if you're really passionate about it and it's something you want to do, there's always money to be made and you can always make a career out of it if you're passionate about it. So. Yeah, and if you're passionate and about it, it never, yeah, it never feels like work. Sometimes it does, but totally. yeah, <laughs> most well, of the time it doesn't. <laughs> work's always work, but you know. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What kind of uh, flying uh, did you want to do in the military? Did you see something that you're like, oh, I kind of want to do that style of flying? Or is there a particular aircraft that you wanted to sort of fly? Uh, look, not really. I think I went in. Uh, I went into the military sort of not knowing a lot. I sort of went, if I want to fly, I'll join the Air Force um, because obviously they have planes. And I didn't know that much about military helicopter pilots. Uh, so as I was going through all of the screening process, uh, I was talking to as many people as I could and someone said, oh, well, have you considered helicopters in the Navy? Uh, and I really liked the idea of how versatile a helicopter is. Uh, you know, you don't need a runway, you can land anywhere. Uh, and I liked the idea of doing you know, all the utility that a helicopter can do and the work that I saw at that point in the Navy, they had the seeking helicopters, the kind of work that they were doing. And that really interested me. And I wanted to go in to help people. And I felt like that was an area that I could have a really diverse platform um, and to be able to help people with. So that's kind of the reason that I sort of went towards helicopters in the Navy. Uh, and I also got to fly planes before I got to fly helicopters in the training continuum. So I sort of got a bit oh, of cool. b- both worlds as well. So I liked the and idea like, of that. No, helicopters are better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll convince you by the end they're better. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, that was a my, one of my questions: whether you flew fixed wing before you went to helicopters. And, yeah. yeah. So in the military training continuum. Um, you know, I probably, I flew the CT4, uh, and then onto the PC9 through military pilot school. And, uh, you get about 200 hours of fixed wing, uh, before you graduate. Uh, and then, and then I moved on to helicopters. So I had about 200 hours of fixed wing flying and then came across to helicopters. So 
what made you want to fly helicopters? Uh, did you have a chance to fly in one and have that sort of experience in the helicopter or was it more like you were saying that sort of, oh, I want to do the roles that they're sort of designed to do? And it, it was more than roles, to be honest. Uh, I, had a fly, I had a couple of flying lessons before I'd even joined the military, before I, um, before I took that path, just to make sure that I didn't get you know, air sick and I actually really liked being in the air. Um, but that that's was a good, that's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that was just out at um, Toowoomba Airport. Uh, but I'd never been in a helicopter before, uh, flying a helicopter before I started training on them in the in the Navy. So yeah, I, I could have I might might have gone in and and not enjoyed it, but I'm really <laughs> You've glad been like, that I did. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that also leads to the question: uh, What do you think some of the biggest challenges flying a rotary wing aircraft as opposed to fixed wing? Um, I, you know, I can, I can always say something like hovering, um, was always a challenge, but I think, you know, coming out of 200 hours of fixed wing flying, when you first start to fly a helicopter, like I was just, I felt like I was learning straight again, because the skill set is so different. So that's frustrating yeah, wow. when you were start, I was starting to feel like I could do it. And then you start again on a new platform and then I couldn't do anything. And, was, and that was quite a frustrating <laughs> step to go. Oh, I'm starting from square one again uh, and learning to hover. But uh, I had a really great instructor um, and his name was Colin and he made hovering a fun experience um, and, you know, and made that process, albeit frustrating, a really enjoyable one. Um, but I always explain rotary wing flying, like flying a manual, like, like driving a manual car versus an automatic car. You've really got to be listening to the sounds of, you know, the rotor and the engine, you know, moving once you move one control, you've got to move the other two. Uh, and again, it's just getting used to that environment. It does, it took me a, you know, it took me a while to get to, to learn that and to make it autonomous. Uh, but yeah, once what, the initial learning to hover is always a hard thing. So that's probably the most challenging bit. Well, considering you're the first helicopter pilot on the show, and I don't know a ton about helicopters. I've only ever been in one once. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people do have a background in fixed wing aircraft. You can be the first person to tell me what all the three controls are. Okay. Because to me, it looks like you're juggling <laughs> when yeah. you're doing it. So I'm like, I don't know what these things are. So Yeah. So you've got kind of, I guess, your three axis um, controls, as you just said, you've got... Uh, You've got your pedals firstly, so your left and right foot pedals, and they control, I say, the where the aircraft's facing, so the yaw of the aircraft. Uh, you've then got your collective, which is on your left hand, and that goes up and down on the left, uh, and that controls the pitch of the blades. So it allows there to be more lift or less lift, um, and that vertical up and down, um, I guess, kind of movement. And then you've got your cyclic, which is in, in between your legs, and that's uh, changing the whole attitude of the disc. So you're moving all of the rotors either forward, back, left or right um, on your swash plate, essentially. So that, yeah, and that controls where you're moving in space. So as you can probably appreciate, because there's lots of things moving all at once, if you add a bit of power, that's going to change all the other two axes. So there's always that flow on effect. So when you do one thing, you've actually got to make two subsequent movements to compensate um, for all of the aerodynamics that are going on. 
Hence the juggling I was talking about. Hence the juggling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, it sounds, yeah, complicated at first, but I'm sure, you know, once you get it, it is like driving a manual car, hey? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I also am not very good at, so maybe I'll skip the helicopter training for a while. Yeah. (laughs) See, I love driving manual cars as well, so... um, Ah, see, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I like it, I'm just... I don't have a lot of time in one, so yeah. <laughs> not a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, it's building the hours and building the experience. Exactly. Cool. So you said you had a couple of lessons before you joined the Navy. Hmm. What do you think's unique about learning to fly in the Navy compared to, say, going to your local flight school? And would you recommend that as a pathway to learn to fly? Um, again, I only had a few lessons um, up at Toowoomba Airport. And I really enjoyed them, uh, but I don't have a lot of context about um, going to your local flight school uh, except for those few experiences. But I think with the Navy, uh, the rate of learning is very high through the process. So there is that expectation that you keep up and you can't fall behind. Um, So with that is, you know, a little bit of element of stress and that expectation to perform Um, because the rate of learning is really high. And so you have that constant stress and that expectation to perform. So if you do fall behind, um, you risk losing your job as well. Um, So I think there is that in the military because you've got only a certain amount of time to go through that flight training. Whereas I'd say if if you were doing it, uh, you know, in, in the civilian world, you might have a bit more time or you can you can dictate that timeline, whereas the military dictate the timeline of learning. So I, so I think everyone finds that a bit stressful and a bit difficult. Um, but with, I think with anything with, you know, if you study and you've got the right attitude and with determination, um, it's a, it's a great system and you get to fly some really cool aircraft. You get to do some really cool things. And, and I got to progress pretty quickly through the systems because of that as well. So I definitely recommend it. I was stressed, but it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I just don't think you get, uh, like, I wouldn't have got that experience and those flying experiences if I hadn't gone down that path. Mm. Yeah, it does seem really unique. Yeah. Mm. What aircraft did you learn to fly in uh, helicopter-wise? Uh, so when I finished pilot's course uh, on fixed wing and came across, we started flying on the um, AS350 Squirrel helicopter so again a little turbine machine but a great machine at that um i love the squirrel i loved flying it um you can you can throw it around uh and it's really versatile and it's used for a lot of things as well and so we trained on everything utility so with the winch with the hook underneath the aircraft to pick up loads uh yeah we did um like like personnel transfers and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, so it's a really versatile aircraft. So we did about a hundred hours of training on that, and then uh, and then I flew that for a couple of years after to consolidate all that learning. Did you move on to bigger aircraft after that? Yeah. So so again, they they sort of the Navy sort of have a timeline of um, of aircraft, uh, but they allow you to sort of consolidate on the Squirrel at the time. And then, and then I went on to uh, the NH90 or the MRH90 um, after that. And that was in about 2015, 2016, um, that I went on to the big aircraft and then learnt uh, in that, which is a, 
it's amazing glass cockpit uh, four axis IFR machine um, that wow. is also in the logistics um, and utility space. So I sort of got to use those elements, you know, that I'd learnt on the smaller aircraft and then just applied that um, onto the bigger machines. So uh, yeah, yeah, I really did enjoy, you know, I only flew the two helicopters in the Navy, but I loved both of them. That's cool. I was going to ask you if you had a favourite. Uh, I do have a favourite and it's got to be the MRH-90. <laughs> Just because <laughs> they always say, or I've always heard that it's, um, you'll always have a special place for the first big helicopter that you fly. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a big milestone uh, in the career continuum to, you know, to fly a big aircraft in the Navy and get your captaincy. And, and that was kind of the aircraft that I did it on and, uh, yeah, and I, I had I did some really cool things on that aircraft, and it will always be my first big helicopter. So I think I'll always have a little special place for it. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> mm. So, what kind of operations and flying were you doing over that time? Uh, so, uh, on the on the MRH ninety, we were employed to do search and rescue, medivac, and logistics at sea, but also trained in the amphibious operations space. But most of the uh, deployments I went on were uh, humanitarian aid disaster relief in the Southwest Pacific. So, uh, so yeah, so we focused on that, uh, but we could do, and we were trained in all other sort of uh, disciplines like fast roping, aerial mine, disposal, uh, operations to small boats as well, uh, as well as surface search out in the big, um, or in the warfare uh, sort of sector. So we had a we had a lot of scope with what we could do being a utility and multi-role helicopter, as the name says. But yeah, we operated more in that humanitarian aid disaster relief space in search and rescue and medivac. I imagine that would be pretty fulfilling doing a job like that. Oh, look, it really was. Um, and as I said originally, I, I wanted to join to help people and I found that space. Um, you know, I always liked the fact we were short notice to move at that squadron all the time. Uh, but I liked that we were always there ready to ready to help if and when we were needed. Um, yeah, and, and I saw uh, we did the Queensland uh, when Cyclone Debbie hit, we did that in 2017, as well as Vanuatu assist that year. And, and those, uh, there's humanitarian operations. Yeah, you know, we might not have, seen much you know action at the time but we were there and ready to help and and to use that skill set and i i really enjoy that kind of work it's great yeah mm. is there a particular operation or um humanitarian operation that you did that sort of sticks with you today uh um i guess look i think i think all of my deployments were different so they had their positives and negatives but what I really liked about all of them was working in close teams all the time. Uh, and I know we were going to touch on, uh, you know, how that team environment worked, but yeah, totally. I, that's probably what I can draw from it was that, you know, when, when something happened and we needed to deploy short notice or we were deploying anyway, you know, everyone used their unique skill set to come together and make that happen and watching that in all the different scenarios, you know, everyone getting getting together, making things happen uh, is just a really wonderful thing to be a part of. That's cool. 
and yeah like we were saying I'd, I'd like to ask you know aviation can so often be a solo pursuit where you know it's like i'm getting my license i'm going to fly this plane i'm going to be the captain of this airliner and you know <laughs> and uh, no one else gets you particularly if you don't have aviation uh friends or people around you that sort of know that scene but I imagine being in the Navy, there's so many people around you sort of doing the same thing, you know, doing the same, like larger groups of people doing the same operations and with the same goals. What's it like uh, operating in that sort of sphere and um, what's it you know, like working in such a large team? And do you have to adapt to working in an environment like that? Yeah, look, I, I, um, I've always seen aviation uh as a team, like as a bit of a team sport, essentially. Uh, I think that's the really unique thing with um, with maybe helicopters that, uh, and the work that I've done is you're always working with, you know, other pilots or front seat crew, with air crewmen, with engineers, uh, like logistics and support staff were really important in what we did, as well as your operation cells, um, ATC, you know, we'd deploy with ATC on the ship. so. Uh, when we worked in that bigger Navy environment, it was always a team effort because we couldn't do what we needed without without our crew, without the medical staff, if we were doing any medivacs, uh, you know, with with the operations staff. And yeah, you can you can look at it in a micro sense or a macro sense. But I have always found that it's always a team environment. So I really like sharing that common goal and, and working towards that with other people. I've always played team sports. Um, so, so yeah, I really, I really like working in those large teams. And I've always found myself in an aviation team and, and never really been a solo aviator. I think it's fun having that support network and people to bounce ideas off to, I imagine. Mm, yeah, oh, definitely. And I think when you have a... You know, when you have a really good close team, especially with different skill sets who are highly specialised, everyone can bring in their opinion. You can work together and using your skill sets and, and, and get great outcomes out of it. Very cool. Mm. Touched a bit on overseas deployments. What, what kind of overseas stuff did you do? Uh, well, as I said, uh, we, we spent a lot of time in the Southwest Pacific while I was flying the MRH-90 um, around there to do humanitarian aid as well as engaging with those communities. Uh, I was also deployed to Afghanistan in 2013 and 2014 uh, with the US Army. Uh, and I was based in Kandahar, which is in the south of Afghanistan, uh, as the uh, headquarters lead aviation planner for the West and the South of Afghanistan. So we had uh, all of the aviation assets, mostly rotary and a few fixed wing, uh, and we managed the logistics as well as deliberate operations of what were happening at the time, planning those and then filtering them out to the squadrons to execute. Cool. How long was that for? Uh, so I was deployed for just over seven months. Um, which, yeah, it was, it was a great, uh, it was a great deployment and a great opportunity. I loved working with the U S as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, I feel like we went there to, to help and to, to help, uh, the communities and yeah, it was, it was a great deployment. I really enjoyed it. I always think being away from home for so long seems pretty intense too, you know, particularly in such a different environment as well. 
Yeah, and it is a different environment, but I, uh, you know, I mean, I joined, I joined the Navy at fresh on 17, 18. Um, so I was kind of used to being, being away and independent and going on an adventure. And uh, I have a very supportive family um, who, who are always supportive of what I do and, and being away. So that always helps if you've got that support behind you. Uh, it doesn't mean that it wasn't hard, but you again, you're away with a with a great team and everyone's in the same boat away from their families. So you kind of, you know, you build a family over there of your own. And I've got lifelong friends who I met on deployment uh, that will just always be family. That's cool. Uh, so do you have one story that sort of stands out for you um, amongst all the stories of your deployments uh, during your time in the Navy? Uh, look, we, uh, I, I do. We had a, a really uh, interesting medivac that uh, my team did when we were in Vanuatu, and that would have been in 2018, I think. And uh, we were in Vanuatu uh, coming back from RIMPAC, which is a really big military exercise that they have over in Hawaii. And we'd planned to do just some community engagement uh, around Vanuatu and uh, and, and uh, invite some of the um, some of the local hierarchy onto the ship uh, for a big cocktail party on one of the nights, but we got a phone call while this cocktail party was happening saying that there had been a machete attack on one of the outlying islands and the community was asking us for our help to go out and um, go out and help those individuals in the community. Uh, and it was really good to see uh, how everyone just switched on and wanted to get the job done and help out. And, of course, in these situations, the weather was really bad at the time. Um, <laughs> and there's a cocktail party, so you're finding yeah, your designated and- flyers. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we weren't drinking uh, because we were on duty. But, That's but true. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, so the planning that went into it um, was really interesting, but, cutting more to the chase we ended up launching just on first light the next day and um, we had to fly about 200 miles south to this remote island to um yeah to help the community uh and we had two two helicopters in formation going down with a medical team uh, on each including a, a specialist doctor uh, a nurse and a medic uh and i was in the uh second aircraft as we came down and yeah, we landed on where we got told and no one was there. Our medical team jumped out and we were just expecting people to be around and they weren't. And we had a timeline. We had we were getting low on fuel and and we had to make those critical decisions of, you know, how long do we stay? And it was really it was the first time I'd ever been put in a situation like that, but the community ended up bringing the uh bringing the four uh, injured personnel out to the airstrip where we'd landed, handed over with the medical team. Uh, we ended up having two and O aircraft and having to launch because of fuel and time constraint requirements. And the aircraft behind us was still loading patients. So we had to make that really hard decision to go, we've taken what we can and we've got to leave for fuel. And the other aircraft ended up being able to take the last two patients and, and follow us in. And, when we were when we were launching, we could tell our medical teams were working on uh, the patients in the back that it was actually really critical that we were there and we were helping. 
Uh, and mm. you could see the community on the island, how thankful that they were, that, that we were there to at least lend a hand. But yeah, we ended up flying all the way back, landing on the ship with very low fuel um, and being able to deliver those patients to the local hospital and, and give them that chance and, and that help that we could give. And that was really pivotal for me. We do a lot of training in the military, but to actually execute that somewhere else and to help a small community, uh, that really stuck with me for uh, one, of, one of the best stories that we did. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And I imagine that uh, would have been very stressful juggling all those aspects, uh, the fuel level, you know, yeah. trying to save these people and ensure they get medical care. And and, and yeah, we had the, we had, a, you know, we were talking to the doctors and, uh, and the nurses and the medics about, you know, patient care and stabilizing them, uh, prioritizing when they were put on board so we could get home with fuel. And yeah, with all those different, um, again competing priorities uh it was it was fantastic to see again as i touched on people with specialized skill sets working together to get the best outcome and um yeah that really that was a really pivotal moment for me in my career going actually this is this is what i really want to do with my career and um yeah and i kind of then have worked uh my my path further into that direction um to be able to help communities so then I can ask, what are you doing now? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I now so I now fly for RACQ Life Flight Rescue um, and fly the rescue chopper out of Brisbane Airport. And it was an opportunity that, that uh, you know, I'd been looking for, but it came up uh, and it doesn't come around every day. Um, so I had to take the opportunity uh, when it did arise and I'm, and I'm really enjoying the challenge and the ability to, to help the community every day, especially back in Brisbane where I grew up. Was that a tough decision to put the Navy aside or behind you and go, I'm going to pursue a career outside of that? Yeah, look, it was a really, it was a really tough decision. I was progressing um, in the Navy and uh, it, it, it was a bit of probably a sideward step in my career rather than pursuing something I'd put 15 years of my life into. Um, but the military are becoming more flexible with service and I just transferred to the active reserves um, of which I'm still a part of. So I can still contribute to the, to the Navy in that aspect, but, um, but pursue a uh, a different kind of flying um, for this chapter of my life, which is uh, which is a really nice balance that I'm enjoying. What's the active reserves look like? Uh, so, uh, so when if you come from the permanent force into the active reserves, um, again you're encouraged to keep up your skill sets um, and just help out where you can. So this year, uh, I've been helping out with the COVID assist force here in Southeast Queensland, oh, cool. um, yeah. and, and doing what I can to support that. Um, so again, it's just, again, contributing where you can with your skill set. So, uh, I'm not flying in the active reserves, but still as an officer in the Navy. And, and I really enjoy being still able to contribute in that respect to, um, yeah, to the Navy. That's cool. So what can you tell us about RACQ Life Flight? Um, what kind of flying do you do and what's the organisation like? Uh, so, look, Life Flight um, has been Queensland's leading community helicopter service for, I think they've been around for 40 years. Uh, and, you know, again, they bring the emergency and life-saving medical treatment to seriously ill and injured people. Um, and... Yeah, it's. I've really enjoyed my time. I've been. I've been with Life Flight for a year now, 
And, um, and so as a co-pilot on the rescue chopper out of Brisbane Airport, we specialise in critical care, hospital transfers. So we've basically got an ICU set up in the back of the aircraft and we take those critical patients from the rural hospitals to the bigger hospitals here in Brisbane. Um, but we do have a bit of diversity because we can also do the primary response to roadside accidents and other on-scene care as the first responders. So... Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting role. Every day is different. You you go into work, you don't know what you're going to do in the day. But I love having the purpose and knowing that every time I'm going out, I'm I'm helping someone um, as much as I can for um, and using that skill set to do it. It's cool. So, what does your roster look like? Is it the kind of thing where you're on call a lot or? Yeah, so we work a, um, a sh- we work shift work, so it's a four day on, four day off roster. So two days, two nights, four off. Uh, and when you are on shift, um, we've got a fifteen minute response time through the day and a thirty minute response time at night. So you are on call while while you're at work, but you generally we come in in the mornings, prepare the helicopter, do all the checks so that it's ready to go. So that if we do get a phone call, we can push it out of the hangar, start it up straight away and, and go. So, yeah, the, the response time is good, but we've got the checks and balances in place that, that, um, that we can meet those timings and, and get going when we really need to. Earlier on uh, through this podcast, I spoke to Simon Burke, who's an aeromedical pilot um, here in Melbourne, flying King Airs, and I just imagine him waiting there on call as like some kind of fireman situation or something. <laughs> so I imagine it's like, you know, just waiting and then the bells are ringing and mm. you're jumping down and, you know, into the aircraft. Is it kind of like that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I wish we had like a fireman's pole and it was a bit more exciting, but we've just yeah. got a phone with a really annoying ringtone so that you oh. don't miss it. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, you know, like I say, we're doing either checks and balances, either, you know, uh, the work, uh, you know, professional work that we're doing to improve our systems or study for the aircraft or otherwise we're just uh, we're just relaxing or managing our fatigue um, to make sure that we're ready to go um, at, at any point. So, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'd say it's probably not as glamorous as um, <laughs> as you'd think when you're waiting on call. But in, I'm, I say in Brisbane, we're generally pretty busy, so we're flying most days and we're out and about. So we don't have a lot of downtime um, because because we do do that critical care uh, in between hospitals as our main focus. And is there the opportunity to do a few flights in one day, uh, back to back? Yeah, so um, so we have different crew duty days, uh, but yeah, in a in a day shift, it's not unusual to do two jobs. You could probably do three, uh, and then at night time, uh, again, you know, you'll get a job, maybe two. I've never heard of three being done at night because you're pushing the boundaries of crew yeah. duty limit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's sort of two jobs are not, not unusual, uh, on a, on a, on a shift. Do you have a favorite story or a memorable story from Lifeline so far? It would probably have to be my first week, uh, on the job. Uh, so I, I started on the line just on Christmas last year. Uh, and I was obviously like really nervous, still learning the ropes. Uh, and I was with a fantastic aircraft captain who was taking me through, uh, the steps and checks of, of the base and 
We'd spent the first morning, I guess, going through those original checks that I was talking about, getting the helicopter ready. And I'd just been through all my training. So I was pretty confident that I knew what I was doing. Uh, and yeah, he said, look, you know, whatever job we get today, um, just do as you're trained and I'll add in as, as I can to help you learn. But I was still pretty nervous on my first day. So we got a phone call and it was uh, a lower priority medical transfer. Uh, I think it was out in Toowoomba back to Brisbane. So my aircraft captain sort of said, oh, this is great. We'll be able to go through it. I'll be able to teach you a lot on the way. Um, and, and we've got a bit of time to work with to be able to take you through that. So we've we've taken off out of Brisbane and I'm flying and, and he's talking me through uh, and all of a sudden the phone rings and we get retasked to uh, to Morton Island for a, for a primary for um, someone who was uh, had been in an accident over in Morton Island. And all of a sudden, you know, we've we've changed priorities. We've had to divert off track over to Morton Island, low level to ensure that we got there as the first scene responders. And I just remember how, you know, firstly, I don't know how I did what I did because I had no idea what was going on because it was my <laughs> first day on the job. Um, but I had great mentorship. My training was really uh, fundamental in allowing us to change direction so quickly reprioritize and then get to where the critical emergency was at the time and yeah as my first job that was that was a great experience to go through and um wow, yeah, yeah just the the quick decisions but good decisions and um yeah and, and getting to the primary scene and being the first on scene for the primary care so yeah that was a great great experience for my first day <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least you get thrown in the deep end so exactly yeah <laughs> Even even my aircraft captain at the time just said, look, this doesn't happen every day. So. <laughs> and you're like, oh, God, yeah. thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. Mm. That's crazy. So did some of your training and um, experience in the Navy prepare you for some of the jobs you're doing now with LifeLight? Definitely. I think uh, I think with a with a military pedigree, I've um, I've really been able to embrace what I learnt through decision making through, um, you know, being on big multi-engine helicopters as well uh, and working in those high intense environments to translate those skills to make decisions uh, in the EMS world. And, uh, you know, we've got, we've got pilots from all different backgrounds, especially in life flight, um, but I'm just very thankful that my background has given me these skill sets in the decision making, in, in operating tempo, uh, to be able to translate them into into emergency services. Is there a sort of frame of mind thing that you've learned to ensure that you can stay focused on the task and make those decisions quickly and sort of be hyper-rational about things that need to be made? I imagine it's, you know, both your careers, both in the Navy and now, it's all about that. So is there mm. something that you think about or a way that you sort of prepare yourself mentally for those situations? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, but I think it does come a lot down to training. Um, mm. if you, if you practice and you've got repetition, especially let's say in an aircraft emergency, if you practice it on the ground, you practice it in simulators, you go through the motions and you pre-think what could happen, then you're always going to be armed in the real case that you've done it before, you've thought about it before, uh, and you can have a plan of action to to execute in those high stress environments. So you never want to be surprised and 
And I think, you know, the training that I had in the Navy was pivotal to ensuring that you were always prepared for anything. Uh, and the same as in emergency services, you know, you've, you've practiced everything or gone through as many scenarios in your head as possible to come up with those tangible solutions. Mm, I guess that's where chair flying as a student pilot sort of comes into it too. Exactly. And, um, you know, the benefit of chair flying and visualization is, um, is huge and, and something that I've practiced throughout my whole career. Uh, I had a, another flight test only uh, two days ago for my uh, annual uh, instrument uh, check and yeah oh. and, and I know it's it's and, it, <laughs> and the professional anxiety never goes away I don't think <laughs> however many you do uh, but you know you do prepare for it you you chair fly you you write down every scenario that you're going to come across and you practice and you uh, and you do that uh, so that when you do come across it it's like second nature it's very cool yeah i think it's applicable for yeah, everyone all the way back to, to you know few hour student pilots like me yeah exactly <laughs> and and you know it's do your you homework know, <laughs> do, do your homework and and you know you chair fly the amount of times i've chair flown a base turn uh, you know especially in the early career it's it's so important that it comes second nature and uh one of the things that i always that always made me nervous was speaking on the radio and as silly oh, as it sounds I used to sit there <laughs> and practice my radio calls again and again and again so that when I hit that button it would just flow rather than stopping and then forgetting what I was meant to say <laughs> it's pretty um, much me doing that yeah <laughs> or I rehearse just before my instructor's like okay so um I want you to do this call I'm like all right and I'm sitting mm. there thinking, is like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just rehearsing it in my head before I press the button. Yeah, <laughs> And exactly. then I still mess it up when I do it. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it's the thing you're practice. meant to do at home. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. Doing your homework. <laughs> exactly. Mm. <laughs> Which um, actually leads nicely into this question. What advice would you give to aspiring aviators? Uh, what advice would I give? I think, look... If you're passionate about it, as we sort of touched on back uh, at the start of, of our discussion, um, you can you can achieve anything that you want, and especially in aviation. It's such a diverse industry, whether you're flying helicopters, whether you're flying fixed-wing aircraft. Um, as I said, the amount of people who are involved through ATC, through engineering, through support systems, through crew... Um, there's so many different elements that you can go in, different career paths you can take. And I'm still learning. I'll still be talking to someone and go, wow, I didn't even know that existed. Um, and then there's a whole new sector that, um, that you can go down. So, you know, if you're passionate about it or you want a career that's interesting and different and not in an office, um, I think aviation has so many different areas that you can go down and, and have a really fulfilling career. Totally. And what do you reckon has been the most challenging part of your career so far, both in the Navy or in Lifeline? Like we're just touching on the fact that you know, there's so much uh, mental stuff and like thinking of, you know, even hovering. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Was there, you know, a particular aspect that you found the most difficult that you overcame? I think, uh, I think the challenging part is just the continuous learning. I mean, I love continuous learning as well, but it never stops. I think we're always trying to be 
perfectionists as pilots you know you need to you want to get it right every time and, and there's never going to be a perfect flight so it's always in that pursuit of perfection uh the constant study uh is just yeah and that's probably the continuously challenging part of it as i said you know even sitting another ipc two days ago i still get professional anxiety and um you know the amount of study that comes when you go into an exam but with hard work and dedication and doing your homework uh you know they're all they're all achievable things it's just kind of the constant the constant slog of uh of trying to get it to be perfect so yeah <laughs> and yeah it can never nothing's ever really perfect no, it's like nothing's ever perfect. from the musical perspective you can never play a perfect gig i don't think because yeah. and even if it was it's there's something about it that's sort of less rewarding because there's less to you know i practice it when exactly how i imagined and that's kind of like oh you know that's kind of unexciting anyway you know yeah. i think we're all adrenaline junkies or something wanting to be pilots in a way <laughs> because you're like wow i'm in the air or you know and mm. just doing these challenging things so i think get things getting thrown at you that are sort of unexpected and being able to overcome that due to training i think is super rewarding as well yeah and and definitely like i love a challenge and i think most people who who come into aviation uh enjoy a challenge and and that's it you know you're always working towards just overcoming anything that comes up because mm. yeah every every different step is a new challenge getting a new endorsement uh, and all those kind of things is always something that you can be better at and keep striving for, but that's a challenge in itself. Totally. It's kind of addictive too. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it makes endorsement, next endorsement, more yeah. money to spend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I like finishing the podcast with these questions. Um, uh, this one sort of turned into a two-parter this uh, over the last however many episodes which is what has been your most memorable flight so far and this could be if even if you did something you know recreationally in aviation or um, not necessarily your career just something that you sort of stuck with you um, both in a fun way or maybe nail-biting stressful way that was like I've had people, you know, talking about near misses and other crazy things <laughs> where it's kind of weather induced and uh, over this year. And um, yeah, it's been funny. It was actually Deborah Laurie that turned this into a two parter. And I think it was because she had so many scary stories that she just wanted to talk about of her flying <laughs> <laughs> that I, 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 I kind of want to get her back just to talk about all her scary, scary stories. Sort of, um, yeah, scary stories. <laughs> yeah, look, so, I, yeah. Do, do you have something like that? I say everyone's probably got their scary stories, but I'm going to focus on actually uh, the most memorable flight for me was super fun. I think deep down you know, you've got the sayings that, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I think all pilots are kind of children at heart. Um, we mm -hmm. love having some fun, you know, and, and all of that. But I never get sick of flying over my family and friends and, uh, the ability to do that and, and wave and see your house, it just has never lost it That's for me. Awesome. So mm -hmm. I had a, uh, I was actually returning from my last Navy deployment, uh, in the MRH 90 and I got the opportunity to fly down the, uh, Sunshine Coast, which is where my family were at the time. And, and I'll never forget that flight. I'd been away for three months on that deployment and yeah, and come home. It was my last deployment on the MRH 90. It ended up being, 
and yeah and we got to do this big flight down the coast i got to fly over my family and do some big turns and big wing overs and saw saw all my family waving back and yeah there is nothing better than being able to fly over family. So any opportunity <laughs> I get to fly anywhere near anyone, <laughs> I'll be coming. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, that's, that does seem pretty fun, hey? <laughs> yeah, so so that's always really special and, and it doesn't come around very often. So uh, when it does, you try and make the most of it. That's cool. So what would your dream flight that you could do just for fun be? I, I, I'd hate for this to be a boring answer, but... um. I haven't really flown that much around Australia uh, with the flying that I've done. I've flown a lot uh, around, uh, you know, New South Wales where I was training and and overseas, but I love Tassie and I would love to fly around um, and see it all from the air. So I've only mm. seen a little bit of Tassie from the ground. I've heard amazing stories um, about other people flying there. So I would love the opportunity to just fly around Tassie, see it all from the air and and see some parts of Australia that I haven't. So, yeah, that's on my bucket list to do and hopefully I'll get the opportunity to do that. And in a helicopter, you can be like, I'll land there. Yeah, maybe. I could land there. (laughs) Exactly, and that's the versatility of helicopters. So, you know, after you've you've done a few more fixed wing lessons, maybe you'll give helicopters a go. Mm. Is it more expensive? To learn. Ah, uh, yes, I, think I mean, so. <laughs> I think, yeah, I was going to say you you were lucky you did the uh, the navy route. The so. navy round, yeah, and and I and I do think myself fortunate that um that I went through that way because I know how hard mm. it is in industry, and I wouldn't have been able to do it unless I joined the military. So, um, yeah, it is a very expensive pastime. Mm, that's true. Flying is mm. in general, I think, but we yeah. all do it because we love it. So <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Once you've got the bug, you can't get rid of it. <laughs> totally. Awesome. Well, thanks heaps for joining me on the podcast. Um, it's the end of the season. So thanks for being the season finale guest as well. It's been awesome. And it's been great hearing your story. And I think everyone will really uh, be inspired. And it's awesome having you as the first helicopter pilot too. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Chris. It's just, uh, I'm so humbled to be a part of it. Uh, I mean, I love your show. I love everyone that you've um you've interviewed up until now as well and uh, i'm really looking forward to hearing where you go from here and all the other stories that that you dig up so yeah it's um yeah i'm I'm really blessed and and thanks for having me on anytime and thanks again cheers thanks for listening to episode 15 it's been a pleasure making this show for you this year and i can't wait to get more amazing australian aviation stories out to you all next year Have a great Christmas and New Year, and let's hope next year is a great year for aviation here in Australia and around the world. See you in 2021.